Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zupko. Today we're going to speak about interesting book, Rich Russians, with Elizabeth Schimfoso. Elizabeth, welcome. Hello. Elizabeth is a senior lecturer in sociology and policy at Aston University. Her research focuses on elites and social inequality, as well as questions around post-socialist media and self-censorship. There is a professor from the University of Oxford, Katriona Kelly, who said about the book and Elizabeth the following words. Elizabeth Schimfoso is a gifted observer and a sharp analyst. Rich Russians, based on unique access to the country's financial inner circle, dispels the myth around the Russian plutocracy and explores how today's rich emerge, often from the Soviet nomenclatura, to expose global neoliberalist values without wholly sacrificing the communitarian past. So we're going to speak about rich Russians from a perspective of researcher. And it's a fascinating story, fascinating book. So Elizabeth, let's start with the first question, and it's about your motivation. So how did you initially become interested in Russian elites and the impact on the society? Well, my book is from a perspective of a sociologist, and that I became only in my second undergraduate master's degree. First, I studied uh, Russian and history, and then started working in development cooperation aligned to the foreign ministry in Austria. And at the same time, they just so not want no longer be a student. So I continued being a student in sociology. And uh, what I was fascinated by uh, in sociology were all these studies and theories around how social inequality, social class is being perpetuated over generations. Uh, very important here, people like uh, Pierre Bourdieu for France. And then I was thinking that there was a way to take these studies and apply them to Russia. At the time, it was when I started thinking about it, it was 2005. And uh, was this encouraged uh, from the idea by almost everybody. I was at Vienna University at the time because the professors there thought that um, society in Russia was far too still in flux and transformation to apply uh, any such theories and have them make sense. Plus, uh, they told me I would never get access to anybody. Nobody would ever talk to me. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try, nevertheless. And so it came about. I didn't choose the rich from the start. I was looking at any possible social classes and I wanted to definitely use my writing up uh, here and do the PhD, not in three years, but four. Uh, it took me five in that. And I um, I went to Manchester for that. And I was first thinking about the working class and then domestic violence, alcoholism, um, economic struggles, and I thought, well, that will have me end up depressed for four years, not good. Then I thought about the middle class, and luckily I didn't pick it. I would be defining what it is in the first place, till now, probably wouldn't even have been five years for 20. 
And uh, so it came that I ended up with the rich and also, but it was kind of a bit after years in uh, this uh, close to the foreign office um, development corporation organization. And I wanted to do, I was kind of, was eager to do something that is good for nothing other than my intellectual enjoyment. When you said that you studied Russian, does it mean that you studied Russian language or Russian culture or Russian politics? How was it? Language and culture mostly. And was it in Russia or in England? Uh, that was in Vienna. I did my Vienna. studies all in Vienna. I went to first an ex- to St. Petersburg for an exchange semester. That was mostly just Russian. And then I studied in sociology, an exchange, another exchange semester in Moscow at RGGU. And that was with sociology students, which was interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's speak a little bit about the access to those people, because this is sort of mysterious for everyone, how to get to those rich people. So I think, you know, when you wrote, as you as you said in, in various interviews and, and, you know, commentaries, when you wrote to people through the Facebook or you call them, then what? What happened? Like, you know, I am, I am a rich person in, in, in Russia and someone writes me or calls me. So what was the reaction and, and, and how was the development after that? There, was, uh, there were two projects then that went through a book. The first one started in 2008. It was my PhD, and then a postdoc that started in 2015. And of course, this professor who said, nobody will ever talk to me. Uh, she had a point. I mean, she wasn't completely uh, wrong. Um, so what I did in my first project was I asked just anybody I knew or thought of uh, who might have um, some link to someone who could help me further. That it then worked out. What worked out were not necessarily things I expected. There were I saw, for example, that many people who work in the wealth industry and some of them directly uh, for oligarchs would be the most um, logically, hopefully, also promising candidate. This wasn't the case. They often I felt did not want to waste. They are precious. Um, of when there are limited times, they can they can ask the uh, the the uh, big man for a favor. They didn't want to waste it on me, but um, so it was curious at the time. One thing that was was bizarre was there was an Austrian journalist correspondent for an Austrian newspaper, and he said at first uh, he doesn't know anybody. Sorry, Elizabeth, and then he saw that I had already some ex- success. And then he started trading with me in phone numbers. And back at the time, uh, it kind of seemed completely absurd and surreal now. You could get directly traded also uh, rich people's phone numbers. And that was then, for example, leading to the interview with uh, David Jakubashvili, who said, you could make a call. Uh, out of the blue, and someone particularly happy, but others were fine with it, and it worked out. Facebook, that was only no, there were several in Facebook actually. That's right. The first one, uh, which uh, I was quite impressed by, that was um, Ilya Segalovich. He is the co founder of Yandex, he's no longer alive, died very young. And he replied to me, he'd be happy to give me an interview if it was for scholarship, but he would not like to give me one if it was for media purposes. In that case, I should approach the media department. And through him, then 
I also met his wife and I came along a couple of times to, they run a, a charity for uh, orphan children and they had several events I joined. You mentioned David Yakobashvili, who agreed to be interviewed, you know, and uh, he got like $600 million from the transaction, so quite a rich guy. But on the other hand, also the manager, you know, not, not like real oligarchs. So my question would be why he agreed to be interviewed? Like what was his motive to, to accept your invitation for an interview? I have no idea. I was particularly surprised when I then went to the interview. It was a hot summer day and one could easily get tired in the heat. And he must have been tired. He was not in a good mood. I was sweating and was sweating <laughs> three times as much. He would give so short answers that I didn't even have a chance to take a sip or, 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 or a cup of coffee. Um, and it was it didn't go well. And I thought, that's a grumpy fellow. But then met him again at the Economic Forum in St. Petersburg. And there he was the most charming person. And also when I agreed, what can I... Uh, the the interview quotes he was well certainly the interviewee with the best humor uh, among all why he I don't know I can't tell I've actually never even thought about that I know some other person it was because um, I sounded so zabavna how to translate it into English so quirky entertaining yeah <laughs> a bit funny <laughs> i mean a bit funny in in, in a also uh, um um complimentary sense later on it became very very structured and you would never ever get in 2015 a, a phone number anymore and would all run kind of very, very organized and people had much more worked out those their pr strategies in several cases i think like in sigalovic's case it was Certain kind of obligate a sense of obligation to scholarship and to support young people in their research. I think I think it's it's interesting topic to to elaborate on because like if I were in in his shoes, you know, I would say like hmm, I just want to promote how good I am in a business, you know, to tell you how, how I how I made ten millions here, five millions there. And to impress other people, you know. So that was my, you know, interest. You know that I think it's always interesting to speak what's behind, what's the motivation behind. But also, I noticed that you you mostly skip the topic of business or politics, uh, you know, when interviewing people. Was this a security issue or the requirements coming from the oligarchs or rich people that they don't they didn't want to speak about politics and and you know the business issues. I can't even quite tell in the first in the first project whether they might have actually been open about talking about politics. Some of them did by themselves. It was something of I two reasons. Uh, first, um, I thought it might be making things easier, and second, and more importantly, there are so many studies out there: people, investigative journalists, political scientists who A, have worked through that and B, it's exactly their topic. And I want to do, do specifically a sociological study because it did not exist for that time. Uh, and not even since and from the 90s, a kind of a, was a little bit falling in a way. Um, uh, Christian Freeland, I was very impressed by her book, 
phase of the century, even though she, I mean, she's not a sociologist, uh, but a, um, a journalist. Uh, but uh, I felt there was not anything that was continuing that story and that uh, was what I wanted to do. And not I mean, so get often criticized that I wasn't doing an investigative uh, study and look into how they made their money and uh, uh, by what means. But there are studies, a Catherine Belton, wonderful book. I could never ever, it's kind of, it's not my task, let's say. So that was also interesting and different. So they did talk about politics in both periods quite a bit, but when they wanted to, in the way they wanted to. And there was an incident in the second one, a billionaire who um, started talking about, kind of complaining about the political situation. And I felt like, hmm, he is brave, speaking his mind. And he must have realized that just at the same moment and got a bit into panic and asked me um, whether that kind of would be anonymized. And I said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we both felt he had stepped over a certain informal boundary, uh, kind of the uh, limits of what is allowed or not. And then I went home and listened to the recording and was quite surprised. Did actually not say anything all that uh, dangerous or uh, well, risky. He understood it, but there's a kind of a risk he's taken by speaking his mind. It's basically, gone too far in a way. And in fact, it was, it wasn't kind of any exciting. But it was obvious that in the situation, both of the, uh, the billionaire for me, it was a ooh, ooh, danger zone we are now entering. And you, you conducted around eighty interviews, right? So how long did it take? The time lasted from. Half an hour to five hours. Mm -hmm. And each time you flew to Russia, or was it also online? Online? No, that was in, even even in 2015 project. <laughs> there was a kind of prior to the time, like in the olden days, the you know the cassettes, uh, uh, and the recorders, uh, uh, the floppy disks. Uh, no, that wouldn't have been done. There was only one single interview if I'm not mistaken that was on Zoom with a young person but all the other ones were in person either in Russia or in the West somewhere and in St. Petersburg one no yeah a couple and so on and mostly of them were in Russian or English or how uh, no no I insisted on Russian because uh -huh. they are speaking it's their mother tongue what's the point of uh, two people are not English native speakers to speak in English, and at least one of them can speak Russian. Of course, also they are doing the speaking, and it was also quite interesting to how exactly they uh, express themselves. And yeah, everybody changes their identity slightly when speaking in another language, and that was the last thing I wanted. Was there any typical first question that you ask, or how did you? come to the first question, like the decision, what you're going to ask, how you're going to start the interview. I was thinking about that and searching my memory and slightly uh, failing me at times. Uh, I kind of I need to I need to go back to that and 
I can't remember. There must have been different questions and different times. I also tailored them. Uh, this is a very good question. I I think in the first project it must have been something about how they see their role in society, maybe. Um, I went then over to questions like what they uh, think is what it was that it has been that made them so successful uh, about family-related questions, about uh, broader questions of society, where society is going about their children and what they wish to pass on that to their children, relationship to the West, and so on. The first interviews I also asked somewhere at the end, I don't know why I thought it was a good idea. Actually, it produced... I then felt awkward about it and stopped with shame because it produced quite interesting answers. <laughs> I asked them about the um, use of math mm -hmm. of swear words and whether, because I find it fascinating. The, 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 I don't think, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, that there's any other language that has something so specific. Uh, uh, five basic words out of which you can make a whole language and that is so hierarchical beautiful often perceived when used uh, on the top of the hierarchy taboo for in between and otherwise the language of the street some people might be also interested in if you met any let's say thief in law or in Russian war of Zakonia during the interviews because you know that those was wild times in Russia so you know, my students and I think the international audience could be interested in. I read a superbly interesting article today in, in uh, quite long in Republica. There's a new book and I had a uh, summary of that. No, I no, no. I mean, for, there were a few where I knew that they'd done things like trading in Duma, seeds, uh, landmines in Africa. And stuff like that, but um, nothing of the sort uh, uh, anywhere close to borders and Bologna as uh, it developed yes. during the Soviet Union. During those 80 or more than 80 interviews, was there anything that you didn't expect and it completely surprised you in a way that you were like shocked? I mean, in the first place, it was sometimes uh, a bit odd how. The, the, the very kind of, you know, like um, British upper class, always kind of out, seemingly super polite and friendly and inquisitive. They were not inquisitive at all. <laughs> but this kind of small talk, it's not what they need to do. And they they could be quite arrogant. Those would be odd. There was this oligarch who in the car from a dinner party and... He, called, he was talking and just kind of things about civilization. He was kind of very uh, engaged in and emotional about it. And then he would just drop down and be silent for a few moments. And I was quite worried and was wondering, heart attack or something of the sort. Then he came back and continued the sentence. Uh, there were others. <laughs> and he was so the first pro the first uh, the first project that also I didn't necessarily know so organized some of the interviews were organized by middle and what's the word intermediaries and something that was also 
some cases that I couldn't even know who the people were. They wouldn't tell me, I found them out later. And in such situations, I excluded many of them. And you asked before about the money. It was, it's quite easy to get a certain feel of whether they actually fall in the money bracket I consider the minimum or not. And once you are once you are in the in the in the wealth bracket, you don't talk about money. It's an, it's kind of it's there anyway. When people talked about money, then it was rather that they went into lengths, elaborated on that uh, money for them is something nevertheless vulgar, you need it, but it's time to move on and find something for the soul. So in this in this first period, when I ended up in interviews where I think really saw those are not actually candidates, there was one guy who, he had a studio, an art studio of um, Tverskaya as and a lot of kind of this aesthetic uh, kind of tea ceremonies and monies and so on. And it was a round table uh, with a bench, and he talked a lot about it. Was about when he was facing bears in uh, uh, Siberia and moved it closer. We basically made the whole circle around the table uh, uh, in the movement, and then he demonstrated me his knife throwing skills. He had a kind of the whole equipment there uh, that was bizarre. But in terms of who actually was suitable, the, well, of course, in terms of topic, those um, billionaires' wife, when I asked uh, what her parents had passed on to her that made her so successful, well, it's about zines, of course, uh, genetic um, uh, focus among many of them. Uh, what I loved was that it was a summer day again, morning, and an office where the sun was shining quite warm. And was, uh, the, the, the guy could see he had some vodka the night before, and I was a bit sleepy as well. And he was talking a little bit bored about it himself and talking about his wife, who is um, having a career, and he quite annoyed about it because he, she should be actually. Um, spending more time with the children and so kind of was getting tired and says all of a sudden that he was a sexist. Oh, who called him? I'm a sexist. And that's an odd thing to say. And it was wide awake. And then he continued explaining to me that a sexist was not someone who loves sex. Uh, and then you know, if he just told me that he was an atheist, if the Lord would have wanted men and women to be the same. He would have made them the same. But as he didn't, he had obviously had points that there's some responsibilities for women and others for men. And so it went. He then later on said, uh, uh, talked about gays. And he says, oh, I don't mind gays. I mean, I wouldn't have them anywhere in my friend circles. But they meant homosexuals quite good because the more homosexuals there are, the more women uh, are left over for us. And so, yeah. How did you feel when you were conducting those interviews? Because in the West, we were reading about the rich Russians. Some people met rich Russians in London or, or California or different countries, you know, but usually we were just reading, but you were speaking with them. 
So was there a special feeling for you as a researcher? Interesting question. It didn't feel, I mean, I told you before the story about David Jakubashvili. Um, I was sweating because of his monosyllabus replies. I wouldn't have thought about anything other than that. And there was a situation where I didn't, uh, where my brain didn't click who I was actually, was in social situations, actually talking to. And then only in hindsight, uh, things in place. I, I don't think I would have ever had time to reflect or think about such things. It was rather the bizarre stories when then afterwards coming out saying, what was that? <laughs> that is so... I, I was ashamed when people often kind of assume that it's easier for women than for men. But of course, I had and advantage with was that I wasn't left foot the bill. And I mean, I had no money. 2008, before the crisis, was for me, was super expensive in Moscow. I found this billionaires, however, they were waiting for me to uh, pay. Uh, but I know from some research as well that their expenses were a little bit higher than mine. But then again, I missed out on. All the sauna situations and you name it. Yeah, there were, however, funny stories. One person told me about there was a conflict going on in there, some business partner, and they were going into sort of the rivaling group to somewhere in Siberia. And the hotel, by default, if it's a men only group, organizes some girls for them in the sauna. And the first group of men, basically didn't realize that the girls had ears and maybe a little bit of memory and were talking freely. And then the next evening, the other group came and the girls passed on the information and then the scandal broke and nobody, you know, where was the leak? What happened? How was that information passed on? So let's speak a little bit about methodology. You got data from those interviews. And then what? Like, what sort of methodology did you use and what sort of challenges do you face? What I did is the interviews. I also did a lot of, you can call them expert interviews. The interest, most interesting ones were often actually by not the wealth industry people, but a courier, for example, and a builder I talked to, and tax drivers, of course. And the third uh, set of data was um, um, observations in social situations. And what I did was uh, what you call thematic analysis and um, for all the data and tried to get my uh, head rounds, uh, basically. What I had to do that was a bit uh, challenged. Uh, so there are two things. So the kind of like PhD student, you try to follow the rule. You don't even think that he might decide not to break the rule rules. And I should have, in hindsight, been much more flexible. So I had the idea that an interview for an interview needs to be a formal situation where the interview partner had agreed on an interview, which I didn't realize 
that's so stupid, Elizabeth. You're losing so much data you could otherwise collect with your formalistic approach. And another thing that was stupid was that I didn't, um, right from the start, write enough typical ethnographic field notes, but relied on my recording. And in the, and what a clear rule breaker was then in the analysis, uh, uh, even so I kind of, I mean, I thought it's true, I think it's stupid uh, not to have the flexibility of how I, when I used name and what I did when I anonymized people. And it was, of course, realizing that there's a big risk, two things, a ridiculing, ridiculing interview narratives because it's easy and to basically uh, presented it to me and on the other hand to self-censor and in order to not self-censor I used in the case of where people was expected to be named and expected to give uh, permission for what they allow me to say the name that I didn't um, dismiss the rest of the material but gave them a, a fictional character. That was a requirement from Oxford University Press. They hired a libel lawyer, and the libel lawyer said anybody anonymized must not even recognize themselves. And um, if they recognize themselves, I said, why well, makes them much more well, I'm flattering them? He said, just not flatter them. On the contrary, um, be as Blunt and honest as you can, because people are much less likely to realize that it could be them if they are not so wonderfully presented. A, B, um, if they even suspect it might be them, they are much less likely to cause fuss because they don't want to be identified or can fling to this mm. character. Right. After publishing the book about Russia, no matter who you are, usually are between two camps. The first one is respecting you for good work and for the research. The second is slightly suspicious of the links between the author and the Russia, some sort of pro-Russians, you know, narratives and stuff like that. So I'm sure that you receive feedbacks from both camps. There was this one journalist who wrote a very, very long review. <clears throat> I don't know. It's not very well known. Not very big. I couldn't read it to the end. It was too long and very complicated. Uh, but he found from the internet a photo. Uh, I was uh, working for a few years as a volunteer at the St. Petersburg Ball in London. And uh, they are pictured. It's a kind of basically a, a fancy dress party. People uh, in, in historical gear. And uh, not a very, very uh, flattering photo with uh, me and sipping uh, from a champagne glass. And this journalist said, obviously, I'm talking about, I'm not kind of going and uh, reveal, exposing their dodgy businesses because I was bribed with champagne. And another bizarre situation was last year when. You remember in April, no, when was it? I think starting in April 2022, when uh, people started falling from balconies. And I did, and so there was this brilliant journalist, and kind of he must have had, he must have been rubbing his hands. 
he did a story that was replicated all over the world in all languages thousands of times. A list of about seven, what he called oligarchs, uh, who died uh, a little bit under su uh, suspicious circumstances. And look at them after the same names. Some of them were uh, ruble oligarchs. Uh, clever journalist she was on us, but it got lost in the translation. And others were, they called a oligarch, everybody, uh, I never ever called him oligarch, certainly not before February 2022. Uh, one guy was from a kind of one part of Sydney Gas from uh, organizing and uh, responsible for the internal transport system for this sub branch. The other one was. Um, an accountant, Buchgalter, oligarch. So it was kind of a very clever way that in order to get uh, a lot of clickbaits to uh, a sensationalist story, and then uh, I got another, I got a call from a CNN, they wanted me to feel the program, and, and there was Phil Browder and another person already who said probably the Kremlin is not involved in him. And uh, the journalist so wanted someone who said the opposite, and um, I explained, well, and there are certain hierarchies that were strict to speak on your level. We see that Prigozhin uh, was a bit uh, going too far, thinking that Putin would right away talk to him. Would Putin ever make his hands dirty thinking about some Buchgalter accountant uh, and his death? Mm, unlikely, it's a bit beneath his level. And then on Twitter, I got uh, got accused by quite a few people of, of course, saying Putin's not involved because I must be on, on the Kremlin payroll. It's an interesting logic. What was interesting overall and how the book was received I didn't mean to neither be, I want to just analyze them and sociologically and understand them. I didn't want to, it wasn't kind of my thing, it was my task to uh, attack them, neither was my task to flatter them. It's kind of not the point. And uh, the reception was by some that uh, I was far too friendly to them and by others that they came back to, oh, Elizabeth, one character worse than the, the other and so oh that's not what I wanted either yeah so yeah, it's it's quite interesting how broad the perception's been mm. developed absolutely I mean it's it's a it's a complicated topic and, and you have views from different perspectives so there is there is almost nothing you can do you just have to face to this and explain your position as a researcher this is this is what you what you have to do. Let's speak about genes, because you mentioned that when you ask about money and wealth, some of them they mention genes. Like it's it's because of genes. I'm rich because of genes. So what does it mean in reality in connection to money? It's an interesting thing because once you say it's your biological structure, you're actually also implying that. It wasn't your merits, in a way, if you think it's wrong. It's not that they had thought it through, I and mean, nobody who says that has really kind of said that usually and thought things through. And, but it seemed like they were also aware of it, and they would bring in uh, the meritocratic um, 
foundation of their success. It's by and large, however, was in most cases a mixture between genetic uh, set up that just made them not necessarily more intelligent, that in any case guaranteed, more gifted, more talented, but also, and that was important, more entrepreneurial. So the entrepreneurialism is something you either have or not. Innovative, of course, hard, and then it comes to hard working. But the other aspect that was very important was, which they gave a lot of credit uh, to and were very grateful for, uh, was their Soviet education, especially when they went to some um, special, special schools, wrong term, to some elite schools, often with uh, books um, on mass and science. In your book, you often mention charity and philanthropy. What, what, does it, what does it mean, philanthropy or charity, for those rich Russians that you interviewed? That was a question uh, triggered. So the genetic thing, I didn't expect it came out from them. But I had a question specifically about philanthropy. And that was actually interesting. It was some of the questions I would have never expected to be any sensitive. And there were a few people who thought it was intrusive and also told me right away, they're not going to answer, it's a private thing. Once you talk about philanthropy, it's not philanthropy anymore. And so uh, what we see in Russia in general is kind of social projects, charity projects and philanthropy, like Blavatnik, uh, that is beauty of arts with his Blavatnik Tower and Tate Modern. There were quite a number of them, um, in, especially in the first project, uh, throughout who have these massive projects of setting up a new museum, which, of course, um, become from the West quite surprising. It's not what, uh, what's the point of setting up a new museum, is all uh, so established. And for example, Boris Minsk uh, with his uh, Museum of uh, Impressionism, Russian Impressionism. Which he didn't didn't kind of was there for long because he had to <clears throat> run off to London after his business bank uh, went down. It was interesting for, to me to see how what they talked about and what they saw how how they linked it, for example, to the idea of finding something new. Now they have money, but. Once you have money, you need to move on uh, and do something beautiful and something that makes sense and for the soul. And for that, of course, philanthropy is ideal. Men are particularly engaged in art projects, which I found interesting in the West. That's not necessarily the case. What is all over the, the, the world pretty much the same is that art philanthropy has much more prestige than social project. projects. Social projects in Russia more on a female domain and it's also something this this man who got involved in it with their whole hearts they were completely passionate about it and it was basically their biggest thing not so good for those who haven't found place and that was a it's kind of a problem for many uh, this unease when it came late that well, a lot of areas have been taken and you also kind of understand at some point, while you're not a specialist in any particular area, it's a bit kind of pathetic. Uh, there was a certain thing among those who hadn't kind of found this big, big passion project um, that they had a certain kind of 
they were very open about it. Almost something depressed about it from not having found their role for their own soul and in society, and especially if they'd left um, business operations because you need to grow out of it, and then a certain sense of um, maybe I'll be forgotten and will the world still need me as they used to. It's, of course, also a philanthropy thing for daughters uh, to get involved in. And it's also something that, given the um, economic structure in Russia and this big oligarchic empires, that um, these foundations that deal with pretty much everything. In the UK, for example, uh, philanthropists are much more specific, specialized in, in the area. How would you describe the role of women in rich Russian circles? Because I think the mostly you interviewed men. Am I correct? That surprised me. I thought, oh, if I talk to someone, then it will be the, 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 the ladies of leisures, leisure. And this, yeah, I realized that the structure of society is so male-dominated that even when it went through social circles, the contacts I would get would be to men. I ask, of course, uh, all of them, but I could talk to their wives. And I only got passed on to them if it was women who had to show something for themselves in also the eyes of the husband. So there were some... Uh, husbands who were quite dismissive about, oh, does my wife work? Or, she does something kind of design or so on. So and then I wouldn't get the number. Mm-hmm. And what's about children, rich Russian children and Russian society? What's your observation? It's quite an interesting thing because in a situation, there's nowhere in the world I would say any such situation, we haven't had it in history, where such a concentrated class, China has many more, but Russia and China, they they small and they, they came up more um, continually, where so rich people, a so compact group of this similar um, age group come to an age uh, uh, um, Stay in the life where they have to think about what to do with their fortunes. And the next generation is coming in and is the first, obviously, uh, such transfer of uh, wealth to the next generation. And it doesn't make them particularly relaxed. It doesn't make them particularly relaxed either to think about setting up a um, dynasty, business dynasty. Not that they wouldn't want to, but it also would imply, it would only kind of in almost all cases, uh, be a, a pass over to their sons. But it would also imply that they would have to do more than uh, stick to the myth and uh, wonderful legends of having done all by themselves and hard work and intelligence. Obviously, they would have to pass on uh, their social contacts and also how to navigate them and um, or the maybe not so um, 
not the things they've always told uh, their sons that what their success is based on. And also, dementia, uh, I mean, it's a word that is, as you know, partly on the rough end of things, and it's not for all uh, a desirable idea to see their sons be exposed to it. Uh, so, I mean, of course, many of them are. Even though my parents always, fathers always kind of wish that their children come back, I'm now no longer last interview said it to Russia, uh, many of course do not. And when, from a children's perspective, it's a kind of um, a contradictory story. On the one hand, they could get quite open and say, uh, then of course in the in the in the shadow of their parents, their fathers usually, and that they haven't achieved anything uh, that could uh, compete in no case, but kind of be uh, worthy of what their fathers uh, have achieved. And uh, also that they are very, very aware they will never step out from under their father's shadow. And especially, not but also daughters, daughters in, in, in relation to successful mothers in some cases, it, yeah, it's kind of something they feel is a burden. At the same time, very kind of clever in a way, there's also this idea of it's precisely because you were born in a family uh, that uh, has had good genes and uh, this culture of success and meritocracy and intelligence that uh, you, by default, now, fast track, not by your father, who's uh, made a phone call, but uh, because you deserve it to be in the mid-20s in leading positions, others reach it ever uh, decades later in life. And some have elaborated on this, quite interesting. So, of course, I didn't have to do the things um, others had to do, that say, um, because, well, on the one hand, it's the gifts, the talents they got by nature. But on the other hand, it's also what they were exposed to. They, from such a young age, there were all these interesting people coming to the house. There were all these interesting discussions. There were this kind of specific culture that by default gave them a head start in life in a positive sense uh, that also makes it uh, reasonable that they are further ahead than others of their age. During, during your interviews, did you experience any generation gap? Because we know those hardcore oligarchs coming from the Yeltsin era and, you know, people who got rich by profession, by ideas, you know, that are the younger. So how was that during your interviews? Not noticeable. And that also relates back to my title, From Oligarchs to Bourgeoisie. Which is in some case, in some ways, um, not quite correct the title in terms of the oligarch term. Uh, I think, yeah, if there's a chance, I would say more about that. But in terms of the bourgeoisie um, term, uh, certainly correct if we think, for example, of Potanin at the time in the late 2010s. He was a philanthropist in everybody's eye. Almost history repeating the robber barons in the late 19th century in the States. Then only one generation turning, making, um, kind of reinventing themselves as philanthropists. And if you think of it, Mellon, um, um, 
uh, what are the names? Gosh, uh, help me quickly. Uh, Rockefeller uh, and so on. They talked about because of the libraries, the university endowments, the art centers, and so on, and not because of what they did prior to that. And the oligarchs are pretty successful in that. And I wouldn't say that the younger ones in the IT sector, maybe someone like, but it wasn't a generation. I mean, it was very young, Segalovic, but that is a different thing because it was this programming, uh, mathematics uh, skill sets that helped in the uh, set of Yandex. But otherwise, uh, they're not so, they're not so, I mean, you'd have to make more specific for me to answer in what ways your, um, what, what your, kind of what the emphasis is in terms of generation gap. Think of, uh, that probably is one of the very, very few who actually um, only bumped into Putin several times by, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by accident. But he's also just as unusual, not so much in that he used his brain, but in as much as that he was actually one of the few who uh, made it from like rich to find true. His father was a miner, so it was a proper manual working class background, and not like many others who, um, again, an Arban, a Putanin, who were basically a Soviet aristocracy. In a certain way. Do you understand oligarch as, as a terminology nowadays differently than during your interview times? My understanding of oligarch is that um, of, for example, uh, Jeffrey Bintis, who uh, political scientist, who um, would right away say uh, 2000 years ago, Aristotle, the term oligarch, pretty simple. A rich man who uses part of the resources to defend their wealth. Oligarchs are not a question of whether um, the setting is authoritarian or democratic. In fact, if you look at America, liberal democracy can easily have a lot of oligarchs. It's much more a question of wealth inequality in the country and wealth inequality is this is the breeding ground for oligarchs to emerge and then for them also to do whatever they can into lobbying, for example, to keep things that way and not have uh, redistribution. And uh, that we see in Russia uh, just as much as the states, for example. And the important here is that it's precisely, so the idea of criminologists have, are quite guilty of that. The idea of that oligarchs need to have captured the states like it was the case in 1995 uh, and, and the, the following uh, few years that they are running the state. Oligarchs don't want to run the state. They do it uh, as a last resort when otherwise their uh, wealth is out of risk. But they much, much rather have other people do the job for them. Lob lobbies, wealth managers, uh, politicians, whoever. Danoki, you know, wasting their time on such uh, risky ventures. So that means that for Russia also that it's pretty tricky to draw the line of who the oligarchs among especially uh, rich people and who not. And that's the funny thing that when the sanctions started, individual sanctions, 
uh, from February onwards, all of a sudden, the before, all accounts were used by the Daily Mail, when it was kind of clickbait, uh, the Russian oligarch with uh, Swarovski uh, uh, ornamented car wasn't oligarch necessarily. Maybe wouldn't quite meet the wealth brackets and political links uh, that I implied. But um, from February onwards, suddenly everybody was an oligarch. And that, uh, I think, it was kind of maybe a subconscious, uh, maybe it's not subconscious, uh, yet done, um, uh, very clever intention in that because it was obviously, especially in the UK, not such a big desire to. Um, uh, to to uh, cut in their own arms, what what is just saying to hurt them, the the politicians here and those uh, who benefit from Russian money uh, to cut the links, and therefore because people wanted oligarchs to be sanctioned, uh, calling oligarchs who are no oligarchs, or for example the CNN, even the CNN, uh, calling an oligarch an oligarch when falling from the balcony because it makes a better story. Do you think that the Western scholars are able to understand Russian oligarchs in terms of research? And is there any community of Western scholars researching Russian elites? Because you are quite a unique case and, and your book is quite unique. So I'm just asking for my students and viewers if, if how, how is this topic worldwide? That's very interesting research on elites globally. And uh, this traditional scholarship, which is relatively new in um, this energetic form, maybe 15 years max, that looks precisely at rich people in the context of uh, inequality, economic inequality. But there is still a tradition of, even among those scholars, and even so, for example, Thomas Piketty has repeated many times, and criticized um, uh, the, the, the idea of calling an oligarch a Russian, uh, maybe a Chinese, maybe an African, and when it's uh, a Western rich man, it's an um, employment, workplace um, creator, a philanthropist, an IT genius, and so on. And that is also reflected in this otherwise very, very um, progressive uh, tradition of scholarship into elites and inequality. Whenever it comes to comparative research, Russia is by default to be compared to Gulf states, elites, to Indian elites, to Chinese elites, and so on. And I think that does not make any sense. We're losing out on so much if we get stuck in this uh, what I consider obsolete uh, idea. In particular, if we look at the data, for example, that I collected, something like being so sure that it's talent that makes oneself successful is actually not so much that many rich in the West wouldn't think the same. It's more that the super rich in the West have long learned it's not so good PR, I better not say it. They do admit to it in many other situations or if their voice Johnson just uh, blurb out, right? So my argument is that as unabashed 
as open, as freely um, Russian rich can be. It actually tells us a lot also um, of and about rich in the West. The, the last question for today's interview. We know the book and we can buy the book to read about what you wrote in the book and how this book can benefit, you know, like, because I think it can help many students and the international audience to better understand the Russian oligarchs. But in terms of research, what this project gave you, actually, as a researcher? Do you understand Russian elites much better now? Remember what I said at the beginning? I wanted to do, a bit childishly, a project that was good for nothing. I think for many, many years, there were many people who thought the same that has changed with the war. And I find now most intriguing something that I want to follow up, how precisely the Russian elites, the Russian rich are intertwined with Western rich Western establishments as well. And it's quite a curious thing if we look, for example, a couple of uh, examples. And Daria Zhukova, Dasha Zhukova, Abramovich's ex-wife. There was a wonderful investigation done by a New York Times journalist into her story. Turns out that because of what she represents, she is completely let off any link to Russian money. To consider, she has a one child or two children with Abramovich. They still run the art center garage in Moscow together. Abramovich turned out it was had very cleverly organized his wealth, the trust money, and the assets that were not yet safely stored offshore. And I think it was two weeks before the uh, invasion, organized them and passed them on to their children. Billionaires, uh, but prematurely not quite as planned. So there's a certain kind of link between Dasha Zhukova and her ex-husband, was in terms of money. And yet, the, the, the high society in New York uh, are completely defending her. And Avinto, for example, what did she say? I think she was who said, well, she, 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 she's a good scientist because she had a post, an anti-war post early on on Instagram, I think it was. The director of the Metropolitan Museum of Arts said that because she's the ex-wife of Abramovich and married to a non-Russian, she can't have any link to Russian money and so on. So it's basically the Western high society that does the PR work uh, for someone like Dasha Rukwa. And she's, of course, eligible because of all that she represents, what she is, the philanthropic money she gives away, her beautiful accent, her beauty, her manners and everything. And I think that might be playing a role for the children of oligarchs in the next few years uh, in other families too. One other story that I find fascinating. The richest man on the Forbes list, Russia, 
published in April 2022, so after the start of the war, was Vladimir Lysin. Vladimir Lysin is not on a single major sanction list in the West. Uh, he makes his money, he's got a steel empire that um, produces basic material right for the weapon industry, so right to the war. He's got good context into the to the nuclear sector in Russia, and he makes big money in Europe as before, and it's completely forgotten. No sanction list, no media uh, about him. And this year we have uh, the richest, they did pretty well in the first year. Melnichenko is now leading the list. He had on the previous year, he had 11 billion, now he has 24, 25, and he's kind of completely uh, not happy that why should he be on this sanction list? And there uh, are, he's very good in his campaigning, not yet successful, but it will be interesting to see what will happen next on the front. So, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts and uh, very interesting stories uh, about your book. I think your book is very unique and I would recommend people to read it. Good luck with your research and according to your words, I think there is a lot of to research. So, thank you again, good luck and see you next time. Thank you.